that are constantly speaking to us. There are many voices that fill our minds and our hearts in regards to what are the important things in life, our values, our comfort, uh, and, and, and uh, even our decisions. And these, and these voices, they can come from family, friends. These voices can come from our work or career. Even the voices of the world that speak to us of those very things, of comfort, pleasure, and even entertainment. It could be our inner voices of our self-seeking, self-centered desires, whether those are voices of our insecurity or voices of our greed. And so in, in the sea of these voices that are regularly in our lives, we must choose to listen to the right voice. And so God will provide us with his, in his command to listen to Jesus. He'll also provide the very reasons why we should listen to Jesus. And this is exactly what we'll be taking at. Uh, taking a look at today. The one thing for us is this. Listen to Jesus for two reasons. He radiates God's glory as the glorious son, and he redeems God's people as the chosen one. We'll look at Luke, 8, uh, Luke 9, verses 20 to 36 in those two parts, focusing on those two reasons why we must listen to Jesus. So first, Jesus radiates God's glory as the son, and Jesus redeems God's people as the chosen one. Please bow your heads with me one more time as I pray for the preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to gather together today to sit under the preaching of your word. It is truly a privilege because you have the words of life that we must listen to in the sea of all these voices that tell us what is important, that tell us who we are, that tell us what to do. Lord, we must listen to you. And so, Holy Spirit, will you guide our minds to understand and guide our hearts, open our ears to listen and guide our hearts to be in awe and in wonder at who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And because, Jesus, there is no one like you. And may we be convinced why we must listen to you and to you alone. Holy Spirit, may the fruit of your work here in this place be a loving devotion to you and a faithful obedience to the very words that you speak to us. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. First part, Jesus radiates God's glory as the glorious son. <clears throat> Let's read verse 28 uh, again. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So here the writer, Luke, he sets the scene. About eight days have passed since Jesus said a few shocking words to his disciples. And his disciples had about a week to think over how Jesus was going to suffer and be killed and somehow raised back to life. Even though, he, as he said, he was their long-awaited Messiah and Savior. This was the first set of Jesus' sayings. They also had, a, had about a week to consider if it is worth following Jesus. If following Jesus means that they too must deny themselves and take up their cross daily to follow him. That was the second set of his recent sayings. And as the disciples were processing Jesus' difficult, shocking sayings, we know that there were a few gaps in their understanding. There were gaps even after Jesus was raised back to life. Even all that had happened in the ways that Jesus uh, told them. But for now, Jesus takes Peter, John, and James and brings them up to a mountain to pray together. And what is about to happen will help fill in those gaps a little bit more. 
Verse 29 says this, And as he was praying, the appearance, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. So what's happening here is obviously supernatural. And I personally wish that there were more words and descriptions available for us so that we can know exactly what is going on, so that we could better grasp what is happening. But perhaps there are not enough words. There are not enough They're not good enough words to fully capture this event. But we can try to picture it as best as we can with the words that we have. So what's happening here is called the transfiguration of Jesus. That's the word that's used in Matthew 17 and Mark 9 that's describing the same event. You'll also probably see that word used as the heading for this passage in your Bible. And this is an important word uh, that we do have to note. Because the transfiguration refers to how Jesus' appearance was altered. His appearance was altered. It was not his very being or character or his inherent qualities that were altered. Meaning that this is the very same Jesus that we have been reading about and following throughout the book of Luke. And he will continue to be the same Jesus after this passage. It's just that the way that he looked for this moment was different than how he usually looked. And the change in appearance has to do with a bright light. Luke says that Jesus' face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. In Matthew, he says that Jesus' face was shining like the sun. In Mark, he describes Jesus' clothing as being radiant and intensely white, adding the detail that no laundry on earth could bleach his clothes that white. So in his transfiguration, Jesus is supernaturally shining and glowing. It's not like a dull glow, like our computer or phone screen. Rather, Jesus is a blinding light, as if he is wearing a robe made out of the flashes of lightning bolts. So as you have a more detailed picture of what's happening here, let's jump to verse 32 to look at the perspective of the disciples. And they actually missed out on what's happening in verses 30 to 31 anyway, and so we'll get back to those verses after this. Verse 32 says this, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. At first, the disciples were heavily sleeping. They almost missed out. But then they became fully awake, meaning they were not half dreaming, they were not hallucinating at this point. They were fully conscious, and they saw with their very own eyes Jesus shining, clothed with bright light. And all that is going on with Jesus here is noted simply as his glory, his glory. And this is key to understanding who Jesus is, because Jesus' glory is exactly like the glory of God. We see this in the way that Jesus handles light. In scripture, the only one who handles supernatural light like this is God. Whether he's speaking through a burning bush, or he's leading people through a pillar of fire in the wilderness, or even if it's just by his very presence as there will be thunder and flashes of lightning. It's it's something that only God does in handling light this way. So when Jesus says that he is the light of the world, he's not just using a metaphor or symbols just to describe himself. He is declaring his divine nature as God. More specifically, in Psalm 104, the Lord God is described as being clothed with splendor and majesty, covering himself with what? Covering himself with light as a garment. This is exactly 
what Jesus is doing here. He's putting on light as his clothing. But not only is Jesus' glory exactly like God's glory in the way that they handle light, Scripture also says that Jesus is the glory of God. In the book of Hebrews, it says about Jesus that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The glory of God, to give a brief definition, is, uh, is this. The glory of God is the outward, visible expression of his invisible, divine nature and qualities. God is of infinite beauty, infinite power, infinite love, and such perfect divine qualities of God are altogether expressed in various ways in our world. That is his glory. One of the ways that God's divine nature and qualities are visibly seen is through all of creation. Scripture says the heavens declare the glory of God and that the whole earth is full of his glory. So you may have experienced this yourselves. We would have to get out of the city first, but you may have seen the night skies filled with brilliant stars and just felt how small you are compared to the universe, how small you are compared to the greatness of God who put the stars in their place. Or you may have hiked a mountain to reach the peak just to catch the rising of the sun and the rays blasting through the clouds and feeling the heat and the weight of the sun, the majesty and the power of God. But still, creation does not express God's glory in the ways that Jesus does. Jesus is the glory of God. He radiates God's glory. If you remember Moses, he was a, he was a prophet in the Old Testament who spoke with God and then delivered the Ten Commandments to the people. And whenever Moses went into God's glorious presence to speak with him, he would come out glowing with a bright, shining face. And Moses' face here, there, was reflecting God's glory. It was like a mirror reflecting the light, or like the moon reflecting the light of the sun. But Jesus, on the other hand, he was not reflecting God's light. He's not reflecting God's glory. He was the source of light, the source of glory, radiating God's light, radiating God's glory as God himself. So when Jesus transfigured for this moment, it is as if he, if he lifted the veil or the covering of his human nature to allow his divine nature to shine through. The transfiguration is important because it reveals how Jesus is the awesome, majestic glory of God. The transfiguration reveals how Jesus is the exact representation of God in the exact nature as God and therefore in the exact glory of God. There is no one and nothing else who could express God's glory in the way that Jesus does. And he has come to us so that we would listen to his words, so that we would know who he is and that we would believe in him. For those of us who believe that Jesus is who he says he is, as the Son of God, I see there is a challenge embedded for us in this text, and it will serve as a, a little bit of an extended life application for us. 
Because if we believe that Jesus alone is the ultimate expression of God's glory, if we believe that in Jesus we see the infinite beauty, power, and love of all of, and, and all of God's divine qualities, all of God's wonderful perfections, then how should we approach Jesus in our daily, everyday lives? A more basic challenge would be, how does God's glory affect the way that we live at all? If we think about this for anything else, it's obvious that something or someone that we would consider of great beauty or honor and worth, these things would completely rearrange our lives. We would be willing to recenter our lives around that special person, whether it's a friend or a mentor, or for a newfound joy in a particular hobby or a passion in life, we would reschedule our time, reallocate and, and reallocate our resources. If it's a worthy cause or for a worthy work that we, we, we start, we would be willing to devote our lives and make the necessary sacrifices. Because for any honorable person, noble cause, any treasured activity, anything or any, anyone that we consider to be a significant object of some kind of glory, we will strive to glorify it. And if that's the case with the things and the people of this world, how much more then should the ultimate glory of God completely rearrange and reorder our lives? If that's not the case, then the serious question is, and for us to think about, is this, if not God, who or what is sitting on the seat of glory in your life? If not God, who or what else could be so worthy to be glorified in our lives that we would give all of our time, treasures, talents, resources, energy for that cause, for that purpose, for that person? If not God, who or what is sitting on the seat of glory in your life? There's one indicator here that a life that has been completely captivated by the glory of God, uh, that, that will show us a life that is completely captivated by the glory of God. The indicator is this, that we see in this text. That indicator is prayer. And it might not be common to think that we glorify God through our prayer life, Because it's much more common to think of more external or public endeavors and accomplishments when we think about glorifying God. Well, it is true. We can glorify God by our physical expressions of good deeds, uh, of excellence in our work, even proclamation of God's goodness as we share to those around us. But it is also true and important, as we see here, that we must learn to glorify God in our prayer lives, in our prayers, and through our prayer lives. We keep revisiting this reality that Jesus was in prayer. He was in regular, constant, consistent prayer, even as the glorious Son. And in prayer, Jesus expressed his desire for God the Father to be glorified in his life, even in his death. In prayer, Jesus expressed his love and his trust in God the Father. In prayer, Jesus submitted and surrendered his own will, saying, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Prayer like this is an indicator of a life that has been won over completely by the glory of God. But if you are struggling in your prayer life, as I am, please don't be discouraged. If you fall asleep 
in prayer, or if you, even if you have used prayer as a means to fall asleep, please don't be ashamed. I'm not going to look at anybody. I, I, I did, I've done that. <clears throat> See how even the apostles, even the closest circle of disciples, of Peter, John, James, see how they were just passed out in this glorious scene. It's questionable how long they were even in prayer before they fell asleep. But be encouraged that Jesus is gracious and that he will reveal more of his glory to us. He will help us to understand more deeply who he is in his identity and therefore help us to more deeply love and cherish and treasure Jesus. He will help us to remove anything or anyone else that is sitting in his seat of glory in our lives. And the more that we grow in our understanding of the goodness and the greatness of God, our prayer lives will also grow and develop. We will desire to pray, to communicate with our glorious God, yes, with greater frequency, greater intensity and passion, greater honesty and dependence. So rather than just trying to force ourselves to pray, the solution is look to Jesus, who is the glory of God. And as we are captivated more and more deeply, by his awesome glory, we will learn to pray. So may we learn to know and experience that prayer in this way is a glorious privilege we have in the presence of our glorious God. So that's what it means for us that Jesus radiates God's glory as the glorious son. Next, let's see how Jesus redeems God's people as the chosen one. Let's go back to verses 30 and 31 now. <clears throat> as Jesus was dazzling in his glory light, it says, verse 30, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I just have to mention here that Moses and Elijah, they were prophets, if you didn't know, they were prophets of the Old Testament. They have been long gone. Moses, for about 1,400 years before this, Elijah, uh, from this moment, um, and Elijah for about 700 years. But somehow, they are back in glory, in, in the present with Jesus. And somehow, they are recognizable by people who see him, by the disciples who see him, as Moses and Elijah. So I won't be considering how exactly that got there and how exactly that recognition takes place, because honestly, I don't know. But the important thing to consider is why they are there. On the surface... It seems like they're gathering together for what seems like the most glorious small group Bible study discussion, right? Imagine having Moses, Elijah, and Jesus show up in, in a huddle group and just trying to, you were just trying to listen in, what in the world would they be talking about? Well, here they are talking about Jesus's departure, departure. And that word is interesting because the Greek word that's used here for departure is the word exodus. Exodus. And so before we continue, I want to make a note that in the presence of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, together here in this scene, in the transfiguration, it shows us that the Old Testament and the New Testament make up one unified book. It's not two separate books that are, that are contradicting one another. One unified book. And so our efforts to read and study through not just the New Testament, but also the entire council of scripture, including the Old Testament, including the law and the history and the prophets and the poetry 
there, uh, it, it's not something that we will do in vain. There's great fruit in understanding, spiritual fruit in understanding God's glory and his glorious plan of redemption as we grow in an understanding both the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures. And when we do, we will more clearly see how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets of the Old Testament. And so, in the Old Testament, the Exodus refers to God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. That's what that first Exodus refers to. It's, how God, it's when God chose Moses to communicate God's plan to the people of Israel and then to demand to Pharaoh to let my people go. And we know how that story goes. Pharaoh was stubborn in letting them go, even when God displayed his glory upon glory through the miraculous ten plagues. But in one final display of God's glorious power, he parted the sea. And all of Israel escaped Egypt as they walked on dry ground, while the Egyptian army chasing after them were swallowed up by the waves. As amazing as that event is, that was only a glimpse of God's work of redemption. It was only a glimpse because while people were freed from slavery, they were not yet freed from their sin. And their ongoing sin and their ongoing rebellion in their hearts led them astray generation after generation after generation to pursue after worthless idols, inglorious gods of foreign nations. And so what did God do? God sent prophet after prophet after prophet, including Elijah, to call his people to repentance, to call his people to remember God's glory and to return to the one true God who had saved them out of slavery. Well, Moses never got to see the promised land that God was leading them to. And Elijah never got to see the redemption of God's people. So I can imagine that in this glorious conversation with Jesus, Moses and Elijah are excited, and they're encouraging Jesus to fulfill the redemption that Jesus was chosen to accomplish at Jerusalem. And this conversation reveals that Jesus is the ultimate redeemer, he is the one chosen by God to redeem God's people out of spiritual slavery from sin and death. If you focus on that word redeem, we can understand what it means in light of Jesus. There are two aspects of the act of redeeming something, and they both apply to him. The first way we understand redeem is in the context of gaining something in exchange for a payment. We commonly see this in the form of redeeming a voucher. Right? We exchange a voucher or a coupon, a full stamp card for a discount or for a dessert or an extra drink, and that piece of paper is exchanged for something valuable. The second aspect of redeeming is saving or rescuing. So along with exchanging, it's this idea of saving or rescuing. People often say things like this, oh, that movie was terrible, but that one fight scene redeemed it. There was a rescue happening there in that movie where one scene, just one scene in the movie was so good, it saved the bad movie from being the worst movie ever. And so what Jesus did as a redeemer is that he exchanged, first he exchanged places with us. And because, secondly, it's, uh, it's because as sinners we had no spiritual value or spiritual worth 
before God. All that we deserved was the punishment for our sins under God's holy wrath. And we were all without hope until Jesus came into the world. He exchanged places with us. He exchanged his glory and his infinite worth for our spiritual worthlessness. And Jesus willingly gave himself up to die on the cross so that we would be rescued from our slavery to sin. And three days later, Jesus rose from the dead to accomplish his work of redemption for us. So that now, for everyone who repents of their sin and believes in Jesus, their sins are paid for by our great Redeemer. And we will live in eternity with him when he returns. This is the exodus, the departure Jesus would fulfill. The departure that he would accomplish in Jerusalem in order to redeem us as his own people. So if you are here today and you have not yet personally trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal redeemer, I'm glad that you're again hearing this good news of Christ. And I encourage you to ask questions, to study with the Bible, whether it's with me or your parent or your friend, another member of our church, about how Jesus accomplished the work of redemption for us to see how he covers over all of our sins and even all of our mistakes by his good mercy. We'll see more of this as we move into Peter's response to this in verse 33. It says this, And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. It seems that Peter didn't want this moment to end. And I guess none of us would if we were in that same situation. But, uh, but so, still, as Moses and Elijah are saying bye to Jesus, their conversation is over, Peter strangely offers to make three tents. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. And for a moment, if you're wondering if this is some kind of cultural thing or a cultural gesture of honor uh, to honor people, we're quickly told by Luke that Peter himself doesn't know what he's saying. Maybe Peter was starstruck. Maybe he always wanted to meet Moses in person. Maybe Elijah was his personal hero. But whatever the case, in the presence of glory, Peter felt like he had to say something. He felt like he had to do something when all he had to do in this glorious moment was listen. All he had to do was listen and receive and take in the glory of Jesus Christ. But in this, there's still God's mercy for Peter. And so Peter's error here seems to be that he placed Jesus on the... Uh, uh, Peter's also, error also seems to be that he placed Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. We can give Peter much grace as he's trying to understand and comprehend all that he just witnessed, but still, this would be a mistake that dishonors Jesus rather than glorifying him properly. Because if Peter was making tents for Moses and Elijah, then he better offer Jesus a grand temple for Jesus to stay in. He had just witnessed the awesome glory, beauty, and infinite worth of Jesus. And still, what Peter would offer Jesus is the same thing he would offer Moses and Elijah, whose glory would pale in comparison. This is bordering on idolatry, where 
where elevating anyone or anything to the same glory of Jesus Christ. That's idolatry. Even in this, God's mercy is still there for Peter. And so here is a quick reminder for us that following Jesus is not about mindless, busy, religious activity. Following Jesus does demand all of our hearts, our minds, and our strength. And we use our energy to work out and live out the salvation that we have received. But we also need to be aware that if we do not spend time receiving from Jesus, abiding in him and letting his words abide in us, we can easily turn our intimate relationship with God into empty, meaningless religion. The temptation is there to turn our relationship with God into empty religion. Because without the regular intake, without regular digestion of God's word, of the gospel, there will be a great temptation to forget why we do all that we do in church, for God, for his glory even. We might say that, but we might forget why. There must be times in our daily lives where we personally sit under God's word to listen, to learn, and to grow in love for Jesus. And in his mercy, Jesus will guide us to properly respond to his matchless beauty and incomparable glory so that we could properly designate our worship, our devotion, not from the idols of this world, but to Jesus and to Jesus alone. So again, we can be encouraged by Peter's example that even though he was misguided and he was misunderstanding the situation, there was mercy abundant for him through Jesus. Let's read verses 34 to 36. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything what they had seen, of what they had seen. So we see that while Peter is trying to finish explaining his plan for building these three tents, a cloud comes and interrupts him. Obviously, this is a supernatural cloud, but that, wasn't, that was not why the disciples were afraid. The reason why the disciples were afraid, as the cloud overshadowed them, and they entered the cloud, is because they were fearing for their lives. It wasn't just a strange thing that was happening. They were actually fearing for their lives because this was a kind of, a specific kind of cloud. It was the glory cloud of God. In the Old Testament, it's the Shekinah glory of God that we see often. The physical manifestation of the glory and power and majesty of God. Going back to the first Exodus with Moses, as God himself led his people God went before them in this glory cloud. It was a pillar of cloud, or what looked like smoke by day, and by the nighttime, it was a pillar of fire and light so that all of Israel could see along the way as they were following God. God, through the glory cloud, led Israel out of Egypt and on the journey to the promised land. God, through the glory cloud, protected Israel from Pharaoh's army. And whenever God would speak to Moses on Mount Sinai, the glory cloud would come down. There would be flashes of lightning, lightning as the mountain would be wrapped in smoke. And God's voice was like the sound of thunder as every time he spoke. 
And all the people trembled in the sight of the glory cloud, because whenever the glory cloud came down, no person was allowed to even touch the mountain, or else they would be put to death. This was because God is a holy God, meaning that by his very nature, he is perfect and distinct and set apart in his goodness and his righteousness. God is so holy that even a symbol, a representation of his glory was a weighty presence. And nothing unholy could even take up the same space with the glory cloud. We see that when the glory cloud came down later onto the tabernacle, the place of worship, or even the temple, not even Moses or the priests could enter into that same place, uh, into that same space as the cloud. And in a way, this too was God's mercy to separate sinners from himself, to create that gap between his holiness and people's sinfulness. Because God had declared that no man could see God and live. No sinner would be able to stand in God's holy, glorious presence and live to tell about it. Unless God grants his mercy. And so the only proper response to God's holiness is the famous response of the prophet Isaiah. When God gave Isaiah the, a vision of his glorious presence, just a vision Isaiah cried out in fear for his life, saying, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is the only proper response of people if they ever find themselves before the glory cloud, before the presence of a holy God. This is why Peter, John, and James are afraid. As they saw the glory cloud coming down, coming closer, overshadowing them, and by the time that they were standing in the glory cloud, they are probably preparing to say their goodbyes to each other. Peter, John, and James, it's been great knowing you, but this is how our life ends. But what happens? They didn't die. They remained standing. They should have instantly perished. They should have instantly been put to death standing in the very presence of God, standing in the same space as him. But the miracle here is that the glory cloud came and the glory cloud left without anyone dying. Why was this the case? Why did none of them die in God's presence when they should have? And the only answer is this, because Peter, John, and James was standing in the glory cloud with Jesus standing there with them. Jesus was the one bringing God's mercy, the channel, the mediator of God's mercy upon them so they would not receive death that they deserve for their sins. They didn't die because Jesus, the Son, who was chosen and sent by the Father, he would die in their place. These disciples didn't die in God's presence on top of the mountain because Jesus would later willingly die for them on the hill of Calvary as he would be nailed to a cross, exchanging his infinite beauty and glory for the ugly shame of our sin. The glorious Son of God would be forsaken by the Father as the Father would turn his face away from him 
so that sinners like Peter, John, James, sinners like you and me, we could be redeemed into the family of God as he looks upon us, as he calls us his beloved children, and so that he would welcome us into his glory. For all who believe in Jesus Christ, this is our hope, our true hope, living hope right now. We have hope that death will not be the end for us. We have a promise of a full and abundant life in Christ, even after our bodies pass away. And so, in any struggles then, in any of the most difficult trials we find ourselves in currently, we can look forward to when Jesus will come again to take us into his eternal glory when we will not be condemned to eternal death and separation from God because Jesus has redeemed us from our sin. Those who have received God's glorious mercy, death is not the end for us because Jesus died in our place. And so for those who have received such a life from Christ, God is always declaring to us this. In his thundering voice, he calls out to us saying this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen here means to give attention, to take heed, to listen and to respond properly to what has been said. And when we are faced with God's full expression of his marvelous glory, full expression of his mercy in Jesus Christ, we only have two ways that we could respond. Either we completely rearrange and reorder and recenter our lives around Christ. Everything now serves him. Everything in our lives serves him and his purposes as we listen to him, give attention, take heed to him. Or the only other option is that we reject him, continue living for ourselves, seeking out our own glory. There is no option between these two. It's an impossible option to live a lukewarm life for Jesus, thinking that we just need to carry out our religious duties every once in a while or come to God whenever we, we can in our own schedule when we have seen the amazing beauty of God's glory in Jesus Christ. We will be all in living for Jesus or nothing at all. There is no in-between. So a life that lacks passion for Jesus that lacks joy and wonder and awe of Jesus, probably indicates how we either do not know the fullness of God's glory or how we have forgotten his glory. However, we must also remember that there's much grace and mercy for us because Jesus helps us in his mercy. Sometimes we think an experience like this like the disciples' face would change our lives. If only, God, you would send me your glory cloud. And if I could see it just filling up the space in my room or in my car, in my house, in, at work. But no, I'm sure God will not send us a glory cloud. That is no longer a representation of God's glory that he needs to use. He does not send, need to send us a glory cloud to motivate us to live for him. Because we know that very well, even when, after this glorious moment, Peter would go on to deny Christ three times. And again, he was shown more and more mercy from Jesus. Instead of a glory cloud, 
we need to look to Jesus Christ again and again. We need to look to where our redemption was accomplished. And that is where we find motivation to give our entire lives for him in Jesus alone. As we close, we note that disciples here did not say anything in those days about what they saw. In parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, Jesus even repeats his warning to not tell anyone about himself to others. Why? Why would he do that? Because the disciples should not tell anyone just yet. They first had to wait for Jesus to accomplish his departure, his exodus in Jerusalem by his crucifixion and his resurrection. And because the truth of his, and because the truth of his glory his, and his identity and the vision of his awesome glory, it was not to be proclaimed to the world until Jesus was crucified and resurrected. The glory of Christ must be proclaimed together with the shame of the cross. This is, what Peter, uh, this is why Peter and the disciples would later boldly declare to all who were spread out by per- persecution and to those around him, he would say this boldly. He says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So in one way, Peter himself is saying, you do not need to see the glory cloud. Because what we are telling you is not our own wisdom. It's not our devised myth. But as we saw his glory, you also see the glory of Christ in his death and in his resurrection. He's telling all the people who who did not see what he saw, to say, look to Jesus. He has fulfilled the redemption of his people. And he encourages people all the more to pay attention to God's word until Jesus returns. So like Peter, there's one final way we listen to Jesus, which is simply to call others to listen and to give attention to him. As we listen to Jesus, because he's the one who radiates God's glory, because he's the one who redeems us, we point others that they would listen to him as well. As recipients of God's mercy, those who have experienced his glory as we, as we have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, they would not seek glory for themselves anymore. And because they did not die in God's presence, they would live their, the rest of their lives to tell others about it. They would fix their eyes and their ears on Christ, call others to give attention to him as well. Again, We don't have the privilege to see Jesus' glory with our own eyes like these three disciples. But here we see it doesn't matter because by faith we know that we share in Jesus' glory now through their very testimony and through the words of Scripture that declares to us that Jesus came in his glory. Jesus suffered, he was rejected, and that he died and that he rose again accomplishing our redemption so that we could be welcomed into the presence of God. And so this leads us to our final and second and final life application. There's many, but if I could just choose one, I chose this, which is to give attention 
to God's mercy in times of regular repentance, cherishing God's work of redemption in Jesus Christ. Our response should be cherish, to, to, to treasure and to love Jesus Christ for what he has accomplished for us. And the ways that we can grow in that love, grow in, in honoring Jesus and responding rightly to his glory is if we spend time giving attention to God's mercy as we repent together. So spend time this week to review this text as well as spending times of confession and repentance personally, not just only on Sundays when we gather together, but in your personal times of prayer and personal times in the word. And as each and every single one of us does this, We'll, as we all grow in our humility before God, in our love, in our response to God's glory, we will then more be able to more fully display God's glory in the world. And that is our role as a spiritual family, as a local church. Jesus Christ still remains invisible to the world, but it is through the church, through our church here, that his glory, his beauty, and his love, his mercy will be made visible. And so how can we do that? Is if we live lives of open, honest confession, understanding we are sinners deserving of God's wrath, yet as we continue to cherish in the gospel our, our entire lives, as it will be re-centered, reordered around Jesus Christ. And as people, as the world sees us, they will see that Jesus is truly the glorious God who has come to us. So the one thing as we close, listen to Jesus, for he radiates God's glory as a glorious son and redeems God's people as the chosen one. Let's all stand together as we close. <clears throat> I'd like to give us some time to respond to God's word, not just personally, uh, before we close out in song together and just to ask yourselves as we have heard God's word to now respond asking ourselves I see Jesus in all of his glory in all of his beauty as he has come to, to die for my sins and take my place to exchange a worthless sinner like me for his ultimate glory. As we recall that gospel, to ask ourselves, does Jesus sit on the seat of glory in my life? Is my entire life centered around him? Where my thoughts, my energy, my pursuits are to glorify him, to make his glory known? If not, then what is sitting on that seat of glory? Let's look at the things that we are, we've been trying to glorify. We've been giving so much of our time and attention to these things of lesser glory. Might be even good things, but these are not ultimate things. And so as we do, let's respond to the Lord in confession or and respond to the Lord in just expressions of praise and gratitude for who he is. respond even silently in awe at the wonder the majesty the glory of Jesus 
however it is, let's continue to look to Jesus now, respond to him. Let's pray together.